It's one of those good old meaty Mothma times. It's very meaty. I think so. Is that our thing? Should we make that? <laughs> should we make that our collaboration thing? I need it. And then, you know, you can get Royce to come up with a really great theme song for it. Think of think of the marketability of meaty Mothma time. Krypton to Alderaan. I'm Joey, and I'm back once again with Scotty Holiday here to talk about the Narkina 5 prison arc in Andor. Hi, Scotty. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm finally um, not sick, hopefully. So that's a plus. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm also not sick, so not <laughs> sick all around. <laughs> Can you please remind our listeners or anyone new, hey, if you're new, uh, Scotty and I have recorded several episodes here about Andor, about the individual arcs of Andor, so go back and listen to those. And this is Scotty. And Scotty, would you please tell our listeners what you do, who you are, where to find you, etc.? Yes. So I am Scotty Holiday, and you may also know me on social media as Scotty Holiday Star Wars. I am a queer Star Wars creator, and I mostly make videos on YouTube going over breakdowns, reviews, short video essays on different Star Wars topics, and I'm trying to get into TikTok. Um, So you might see me on there too, but it's a little bit of a struggle, so you'll mostly see me on YouTube, and that's what I do. I'm a huge Star Wars fan or a huge nerd, Star Wars nerd as I like to say, so. Trying to get into TikTok is... I feel that. I feel that <laughs> that's that's the next step of content creators. Now we all have to now we're all trying to migrate away from Twitter and find something new. That's gotten in the way of trying to understand TikTok. So you've also recently joined Hive, right? Yeah, of course, you have to. We're all also on Hive. Everyone come find us on Hive. Overall, what did you think of this arc? The Narkina 5 prison arc in general was very tense and very stressful, but it had a very great payoff in the end. So I think without all that tension and all that stress and even anxiety, like especially in the first episode of the arc, when we're first introduced to the Imperial prison facility, the way that it was shot, the music, just in general, the cinematography, I felt like I was there as a prisoner being introduced through the facility. So I kind of felt like I was there with them in a sense, just from the comfort of my living room, not on electromagnetic floors that could possibly electrocute me at any time. Mm. (laughs) But other than that, like I said, once we got to the payoff too, it, it was just, it was, it was such a good arc, but all these arcs so far in Andor have been great. I agree. Surprisingly intense and honestly going, I think I said this last time, but going back from where we are now to rewatch these episodes to prepare for this, they feel so far in the past to the point where it's kind of awkward to revisit. Like going back and rewatching episode eight feels a little bit awkward in like the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. It just feels like so much time has passed and so much has happened. Where in reality, you and I figured out today that maybe something like 34 days have passed. Cassian was in the prison for something like 34 days. 
So it's just kind of like really intense and so much happens and you don't really like feel that as you're watching them episode by episode, I don't think. Yeah, I, I always try to go back, especially when preparing to do any kind of podcast or anything to talk about a past episode. I'm like, hey, let me put myself back in the headspace of I don't know anything outside of whatever the topic is. So for this, I was like, I don't know anything that happens past episode 10. Let me go back to the night, 3 a.m. when I watched this for the first time <laughs> and, you know, just kind of go from there. So I, I definitely feel that I'm right there with you. So kind of like last time uh, you and I talked, I thought we could each pick maybe some moments or scenes or themes from each episode that really stood out to us and go back and forth and discuss them. So we'll be talking about episode eight, Narkina five, episode nine, nobody's listening, every podcaster's nightmare, <laughs> and episode 10, one way out. So obviously we're going to talk about the prison facility because we can't not talk about everything that went down in there, especially when talking about these three episodes. But specifically in episode eight, something that stood out to me was Mon Mothma's party and just her conversation. It, it's such a it's just a short little scene where she's talking, I think, with, you know, five or six other senators uh, just talking about the P.O.R.D. legislation, just the the phrasing that they use. You know, you've got one senator who's like, oh, well, Palpatine, he's just saying what he means. And then, you know, oh my goodness, the other <laughs> the other senators are like, well, you know, we're not just talking about speeches here. We're talking about legislation. So that was one of the one of the big things I wanted to talk about in episode eight is that specific conversation. I am so glad you brought this up because. As many times as I've watched the episode, I have been infuriated at that particular scene and conversation since the first time I've watched it. That that whole thing just filled me with such real world rage. Yes. That they took the language that's being used in our daily lives since like the 2016 presidential campaign mm -hmm. to now. And the one that stands out to me the most is... Palpatine just says what he means. At least he says what he means, that kind of yeah, thing, he, that language. He's just that saying political language. Just saying what yeah. other people are too scared to say. It's very that. Yes. That's what we've heard every day for years in our real lives. Going back to this show being a very political show and being a very in your face political show, but the idea of taking like very specific language from our personal daily lives and entering in this show blew me away. And it really, I mean, obviously connected me to the show because they're incorporating real world elements into the show, but it also like connected me in a very angry way. Yeah, same. I mean, I was right there with you. It was every time I see it, just like you said, it's just instant rage and it all starts with that. But he says what he means. And then mm -hmm. the other line that stood out to me in that conversation was towards the end where the same I think it's the same senator says, well, if you're doing nothing wrong, what is there to fear? Something I talked about in my review because I had to bring this up is that statement in general just comes from such a place of privilege. It's just like, well, if you don't do anything wrong, the government or the police, you know, they don't have a reason to come after you. And as mm -hmm. we know. In the real world and in this show, too, the police don't always need a reason to come after you. They can make up a reason. I mean, if we take it specifically into Andor, 
Cassian mentions that he was sentenced for six years in prison for literally doing nothing. And the prisoners say, oh, yeah, there's been a lot of that lately. So it, it doesn't matter if you do something wrong or if you don't. If they've decided you've done something wrong, then you've done something wrong. That line just at the end, it was like the perfect bookmark of, well, he says what he means. And if you're doing nothing wrong, what is there to fear? Yep. It was just, ah, like you said, it was just rage. Yep. <laughs> Infuriating. 100%. I think I maybe was so wrapped up in each scene individually, I never connected them. But that's really great juxtaposition that they have a group of people saying, if you've done nothing wrong, what are you afraid of? To cut to Cassian in the prison. He didn't do nothing, but as Keith Gergo or whatever his <laughs> like pseudonym is, he literally did nothing and was was imprisoned for six years for doing nothing. So uh, it's the same argument for the surveillance state, like people who justify the surveillance state. If you've done nothing wrong, then what are you afraid of? There's so many political ties to this entire conversation. And it's such a snippet of the show. Yes. I can't believe like it's such a not small in terms of like the grandeur of it, but small in terms of the time dedicated to this moment is so small. It's one of those good old meaty Mothma times. It's very meaty. I think, so is that our thing? Should we make that, <laughs> should we make that our collaboration thing? Meaty Mothma time with Scotty? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll work that in. Meaty Mothma time I with Scotty. I need it. And then, you know, you can get Royce to come up with a really great theme song for it. Think of, Think of the marketability of meaty mothma time. I can hear it now. Royce, please get on that. Yes, I loved to hate that scene. I love this show. There's a lot of this show that I love to hate, I guess is the best way of putting it. Yeah. Stuff like this. I mean, it's so hateable, but it's also so relatable. Stuff like Cyril and the, the corporate law enforcement stuff is exactly the same way. The prison system is exactly this. Mm -hmm. The entire like spotlight on the imperial prison system, at least as we understand it, our Nakina 5. Not only that like episode eight opens with different prisoners getting put on different transports, just the idea that's already sort of been sprinkled out throughout the series of different imperial officers in the ISB having control over different sectors and maybe needing to meet a quota. So as you walk up to the stormtrooper, you tell them what planet you're from. And so that's within a certain officer's jurisdiction. So you get sent to a certain planet in terms of like meeting a prisoner quota. And I think Partagaz even says in one of the early episodes, someone's fulfilling their quota in some system. Mm -hmm. So like incredible storytelling, again, like maybe bringing our real world systems into some of this. But something that really stood out to me in terms of the prison system in this episode is, well, not necessarily so much in terms of that. As we go through this episode, we just see Cassian's fear. The way Diego Luna portrays Cassian's fear within this prison system throughout this episode is incredible. And also heartbreaking and also really, really tuned me into Cassian's age, which I have not been like, that has not been on my mind throughout this series so far until this episode. I think maybe originally he was said to be 21 during this series, and then they bumped it up maybe to 24 or 25. I think someone, someone in a 
social group that we're a part of said <laughs> that. I haven't I haven't fact checked that, but either way, he's in his like early to mid twenties, mm-hmm. and now in this like just completely lost in this hopeless prison system for six years for doing nothing. Something good that you bring up that I didn't even think of was the whole age portion of it, and just the sense of thinking of where my mindset was from you know, we'll say 21 to 24, right? Your early 20s. At that point in time, at least for me, I kind of felt like I could just do whatever I wanted and the sky was the limit because you're finally an adult with Cassie and we know that he's kind of just been moving around, doing his own thing, not really having to deal with the consequences until the beginning of the series with the officers that he kills out of self-defense. And then thinking of the fact that now he's having everything taken from him when he thought he was safe, now he's going to prison for six years. Well, if he's 24, by the time he gets out, which at this point, I think Cassian still assumes he's gonna get out, in six years he'll be 30. And to think of, at least for myself, my mindset in my early 20s to my mindset now at 29, I'm like, having to go through all of that, but being in prison, incarcerated, while you're trying to deal with just life in general it's so crazy to think and it would probably make me pretty hopeless too on top of just everything just the prison itself a vibe that i really got from it especially while i was watching it back is it's a very dystopian vibe it's very cut off from society it almost doesn't feel like the real world and that's because i feel like it's meant to not feel that way it's all controlled by the empire the government controls everything that people do they go to bed at a certain time they work for a certain time they have no choice they don't even get to eat like there's no cafeteria or anything they literally eat and drink from tubes on the wall connected to their bed it's so crazy that that's their life and as they mentioned it's something i didn't even think about too is when the prisoners are saying like oh nobody knows about the pord initiative because cassian says he doesn't know they're like, nobody knows about it outside. And at first it was like, well, that's not true. Cause like Mon Mothman and them are talking about it. But as I was watching it back, I was like, maybe it's the regular people of the galaxy who have no idea about it. And then it kind of clicked in my head as it's like the regular people of the galaxy don't know what's going on inside this prison. They don't know what the empire is capable of or how they're treating other people. The prisoners are still people at the end of the day. And the Empire treats them less than. Yes. The idea that the prisoners know what the P.O.R.D. is and that, as you're saying, like the general population of the galaxy does not. Cassian doesn't know that that he's going to prison for six years for this offense. I think the judge that sentences him even says this used to be a six month sentence or something like that. That's exactly what they say. Yeah. Keep that information from the general population of the galaxy. And you just make this directive and counting on nobody knowing, and then you double the prisoner's sentences and they're confused as to why, but they know that there's this decree in place and you double it based on what happened at Aldani and the prisoners know about what happened at Aldani. So even one of the prisoners even says rebel nonsense. So the idea that these prisoners hate the Empire and then eventually when they get out might also hate the rebellion for not considering what they're doing to other people. It's very similar to the conversation that Luthen and Mon Mothma have in an earlier episode where Mon Mothma is very concerned about the population of the galaxy and Luthen is like sacrifices will have to be made. I thought that was a really interesting, again, juxtaposition where like, what do these prisoners think when they get out? 
The, the question of who else will join the rebellion? We know Andor and Melshi join the rebellion, but will a lot of these prisoners hold resentment towards the rebellion for not considering how their actions affect other people in the galaxy? Let's talk about episode nine, the treatment of Bix and the torture system that the Empire has created that we see Bix introduced to. Which brings up, I think, an interesting thing that you and I talked about last time. We were talking about the Aldani people Mm -hmm. and the Empire systematically extinguishing their culture through various means. So we're introduced to Imperial Dr. Gorscht, who gets way too much pleasure out of all of this. I think in one of your reviews, you said you got like psycho serial killer vibes. And it's very much that. Dedra Miro says, she's all yours, Dr. Gorse. And he says, thank you. Like, it's, uh, it's entirely bizarre. But he introduces Bix into this, like, torture device and explains that it is from an indigenous group of peoples called the Dizonites from a planet called Dizon Frey that the Empire took over for, what was it, mining something? Some kind of facility, yeah. And the screams the the noises that these people omit when they're being executed has some kind of effect on humans and so i thought that it was really interesting that that this is taking our idea from last time to the next step like obviously the empire has extinguished this culture but that they now have weaponized the last remaining moments of this culture I mean, one of the things is that kind of starts off Dr. Gorst's introduction and the torture device is Dedra's like, oh, this is something a lot of us are very excited about. So that's how we start off getting introduced into this. Dr. Gorst, like, as I said, and as you mentioned, he's giving me mad scientist, serial killer vibes. And as I kind of watched it back, I'm like, oh, he's like a Dr. Evazon type where he's doing this crazy shit. And on top of this insane torture that he's doing, as you and I have talked about, it's literally the screams of the children of this culture that Mm. were massacred by the Empire because they didn't like that the Empire just decided they were going to build a facility on their planet, which we saw how that happened on Aldani. Mm -hmm. And they're essentially in the process of, you know, pushing out the Aldani culture and the Aldani people and who knows that could end up leading to a massacre too because they get tired of them. I think we kind of touched on that when we talked about it in our last pod where we discussed the Aldani arc. As Dr. Gorse mentioned, they kind of filtered through the screams and stuff specifically to find the children. Like they had to sit there and be like, oh, let's watch this broadcast or listen to this broadcast of these people dying. And oh, well, if we take some of that, that could really put somebody in some emotional distress. And, you know, we could actually use this to our advantage. It's just a complete disregard for these people being people, just kind of like we talked about in episode eight, where they're being treated than less than. We already know the Empire doesn't like anybody but humans. All non-humans, they feel are less than. And on top of that, in general, with the Empire going a step further after the torture. Something else that really stood out to me was with Captain Tigo when Dedra leaves after Bix has been tortured. And he's like, what's going to happen with Salman Pak? Oh, shit. Yeah. And 
he says, you know, I'd really like to hang him. He's like, oh, yeah, I really want to hang him so we can show yeah. the people of Ferrix who's in charge. And Dedra's like, whatever, I don't care what you do with them. It's just like, do you people not recognize that these are people, too? Like, they didn't necessarily do anything directly towards you, but they just like, well, we'll just kill them. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. We'll get what we want. If we don't, then they don't matter. Yeah, he says it very cavalierly, much like Dr. Gorse does. Neither of them say these things with any hesitation or any hint of, like, understanding or, or, or anything. They, these are just events. They're nothing. What the Empire did to the Dizonites is just a thing. Hanging Pac is just a thing. There's nothing else there. And it's incredible to see that, again, tying it back to real-world stuff, the idea that, that these kind of regimes bring these people out. You know, yeah. these people always existed in society, but now they feel more comfortable being more vocal. You also made me think of a couple of things that I'd never thought of before. The isolating the children's screams, not to harp on that too much, because it is horrible. You and I and fans, this is a make-believe world. Whatever. We have no connection to any of the fictional species, especially ones we've never seen before. But like, just this idea is horrible. But how did they do that? He already said that it affects human beings in a negative way. How many Imperial officers did they sacrifice to isolate these particular screams? Or worse, what if they captured some of the Dizonites and they were like, yeah, can you filter through this for us? And Or prisoners in some prison system somewhere. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting and ugly thought line there. Let me ask you this. Was this officially the end of your Dedra Miro stan? I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> and, you know, at this point, yeah, I was like, Dedra, this this is not this is not the vibe girl. Like <laughs> this is not where we were supposed to go. It was the Tyra Banks. Like we were rooting for you. And now mm. she's just like gone off the deep end. And I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was just a ticking time bomb. And yeah, as soon as it was like, here's my good buddy, Dr. Gorst, he's going to torture fan favorite Bix with the screams mm. of these dying children by this uh, species that we also massacred. So it was kind of like as we were getting opened up to the Empire's brutality and inhumane practices, we also got opened up to Tedra's brutality. And that, honestly, it was a huge turnoff. I was like, oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> a huge You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yeah. 100%. It's definitely. You know exactly what I mean. It's like, it, it's like, you know, you're on Tinder. Yeah, yeah. You met somebody, you're going on dates, and then they bring up that one thing and you're like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not going to work out between <laughs> us anymore. And that's kind of like with Dedra. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't, I personally don't like violence. And you're kind of committing a lot of violent acts. And I'm not about that. So, yeah, me and Dedra are, I'm not her number one right. fan anymore. Swipe left, I guess. Yes, I have swiped left on Dedra. Actually, I've unmatched. Oh, shit. I unmatched, unmatched her. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. safe. I think that's for everyone's best interest. Scotty, you know what? I think you deserve better. <laughs> Thank you. I do, too. I appreciate yeah, you're that. you're welcome. So, mentioning, 
you know, my falling out with Dedra, one person who has become very enamored with her in this episode, who is super liking her on Tinder, and I don't really think it's reciprocated, is Cyril. Is there a super like on Tinder? Yeah. Oh, wow. Let's talk about Cyril. Yeah, he's a creepazoid, huh? Yeah, let's talk about somebody who's completely into Dedra and even more now. Yeah, Cyril, very, very incel, creepy guy, mm. can't take no for an answer, is stalking Dedra now. Mm-hmm. She even calls him out on it. Yeah, he's really <laughs> infatuated with two people in the galaxy, Andor and Dedra. <laughs> A pretty intense scene between the two of them that really like has nothing else to do with anything else going on in the episode or any anything else to do with like the tension of the arc of these episodes maybe but just maybe shedding more light on the downfall of Cyril we've seen the decline of his career we've seen like the decline of his pride he's had to run home and live with mommy but this was the first real moment seeing the true decline of his mental health that whole scene that whole interaction between the two of them was so Cyril has broken there's one of two characters maybe we've seen in this episode where I've been like oh this this character is broken beyond where I'd expect them to be in that at that point and really at one point Didri even says you've lost your mind you could see it in him like he's he's cracked from the weight of everything that's happened and he's yeah he's showing up outside her outside her office presumably both in the morning and after work because his Mm -hmm. mom is like you leave early and you get home late i should say i'm glad he's not getting i'm glad we're not seeing a redemption arc one thing just going off of what you said because i wrote down a bunch of the quotes i said this scene made me very uncomfortable every time i watched it at first i was like oh this is just so random Like, this feels kind of out of nowhere. And I'm like, he just really is infatuated with her because she's a super fascist girl boss. But then, like, as I watched it, like you said, it's like the decline of his mental health. I mean, he knows he's at rock bottom. He recognizes that and literally says, oh, you know, I've been waiting here so I can thank you for what you did for me. And and Detra's even like, I didn't do shit for you. Crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so let me just read off some of the quotes that I put in my notes because they're just so bizarre. At first, when he says, you know, I'd never lie to you. I'm like, you don't know her. And you're like, oh, I'd never lie to you. He says he wants to follow on the conversation we had last month. And even Dedra's like, no, I was interrogating you. That was not a conversation. Yeah, just like delusional. Yeah, I I literally wrote in my notes next to that. I put hyphen delusional. (laughs) (laughs) And then going off of with Dedra, she's like, have you been following me? And he even says, I know you work here and I come sometimes to see if I'll see you. Like what? You don't just wait out of somebody's employer to see if you run into them. I mean, that's just like some creepy guy shit. That's like, oh, there's this creepy man who keeps showing up when I get off of work each day. And in the end, I mean, I could continue to go through all the quotes that I wrote down. But at one point, Dedrick is like, I'm an ISB supervisor. Do you know how much trouble you could be in? And he just like completely disregards her because he has it set in his mind that 
he's going to have a conversation with Dedra. He's been waiting for her, and she just happened to show up this morning, so now is his only chance, and he literally doesn't give her a chance to leave. He grabs mm -hmm. her and does not let go of her, and it's almost like you can see the fear in her eyes in that moment when she looks at him at first. Like, it's fleeting because it's Dedra, so, you know, like, she's a cold, hard bitch. Like, literally uh as i kind of touched on it earlier so of course she's not gonna let that fear show for the whole time but you just get that little flicker and it's it's honestly scary mm -hmm. it just made me so uncomfortable it was just ugh. it's very very uncomfortable and he says something when he grabs her he's he's talking about like he thought his life was over until she reminded him of his purpose or something like that or until she like made his purpose more clear do you have that quote i don't have that specific one but i did write down when he says just being in your presence i've realized life is worth living i'm like yeah what the fuck you don't just say that to some random person you don't know and there's no way that he did that or she did that for him he's just like put her up on this weird pedestal and because he's so low he's like latched on to her because he feels like she gave him a chance when that was not what she was doing. I mean, even when we watched the interrogation, like we all as the audience, that wasn't her pulling him out of his little rut and was like, we can work together as a team to get Cassie and Andor and provide order. That's not what that was. No, she's told him exactly what it was in every scene they've interacted with each other. Yeah, and reiterates it in this scene. <laughs> Right. So I'm not comparing the two, but the other character in this episode that I was surprised to have seen so broken as they are at this point in time was Saw Gerrera. And they give a little bit of similar, they use a little bit of similar language in both of their speeches or monologues, I guess, especially when Saw, he's talking about the other rebel leaders and he says, I'm the only one with clarity of purpose. And I got very similar, I don't want to say vibes. No, you know the fucking vibes. Come on, Joey. <laughs> but maybe like some similar language between the two in these scenes. I knew that was going to be the line that you pointed out to is that Saw says he's the only one with clarity. And I'm like, no, Saw. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable that Saw says I'm the only one with clarity of purpose after saying all the things about all the other rebel leaders as to what makes them not worthy of joining as one cohesive rebellion. Mm -hmm. Like this one's a separatist. This one's a partitionist. Oh, occultists, he says at one point. And then he says, I'm the only one with clarity of purpose. There's a very culty thing right there, like very yeah. culty and organized religious language of this is what makes these other cults or religions not legit. But here's the same language, but it makes my cult or religion super legit. There's very much that going on. The idea that Saw is already there, he's already broken to that point at this point, surprised me. Obviously, if we've seen the Clone Wars, we've seen how he starts. It's a traumatic beginning to his sort of rebel origin story. 
And I'm sure that that broke him a little bit and made made him the way he is. Something you said in one of your reviews, you know, saw being broken and lost and a shell of the man that we see in the Clone Wars. All of this reinforces something that I would have liked to see in Rogue One. I'm sorry. I I liked Rogue One. <laughs> my biggest critique of the movie, from my own personal canonical knowledge, we didn't see Saw and Vader acknowledge each other. And I think that that would have been a really incredible thing to see. Anakin having trained Saw to be a rebel leader. These two men, ravaged, broken, lost, by the same war, on opposite sides, coming to a head in Rogue One, at least acknowledging each other in Rogue One, I think would have been very like impactful and powerful to the people that know the story and even to the people that don't, because it would have been these two characters meeting. But I just think that that would have been incredible to see. And this particular scene with where Saw meets with Luthen really reinforced that idea for me, unfortunately. <laughs> well, something that I forgot about, too, is now... When we saw Rogue One, which is later in the timeline, now we have Andor, which is earlier in the timeline. Something I forgot about was Saw Gerrera's appearance in the Bad Batch. And mm-hmm. even by then, like, Saw was already brutal. We see that brutality already, and that's just shortly after the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like you mentioned in my review, I'm just like, Saw has become really a shell of a person. Mm -hmm. At this point, it's visually shown with the different, you know, cybernetics and whatnot he already has going on. It's not as bad as Rogue One, but Saw is struggling mentally and physically. And we see that. And like you said, I never even thought about the comparison between him and Vader as people becoming so lost in their search of, I guess, righteousness. It's that search for order. Because even Anakin in episode three, he tells Padme, like, join me. We, we can make the, the galaxy whatever we want it to be. We can be in control. And and Saw is just like, I'm the only one with clarity. So I'm the only one who can really, you know, resolve this issue. It's just crazy to think about. I, I, I think that comparison's really cool. I never thought about it before between Saw and Anakin. So let's talk about episode 10, the final episode of this arc a.k.a. One Way Out. What I've loved about this show so far, and what I think this episode did extraordinarily well, was blend the action of Star Wars, the pew-pews, with the emotional storytelling. And and Obi-Wan did it to some extent, especially later on in the episodes, I think in a very good way. And this whole series has done it really well. But specifically with this episode, and especially with Kino, like focusing on one person, in episode nine, we learn that the prison that Andor is in, they messed up and they sent a man who was released from one section of the prison to another section of the prison instead of sending him, uh, apparently, what they do is just send them to an entirely different prison. So... The prison officials kill all the men on that level where they sent the guy because it got out that he he was free, quote unquote, free from another part of the prison and sent to their part of the prison. And Kino's realization of that really starts in episode 10. 
and something that I love seeing that this series has done a couple of times now is showing the a character's realization of the point of no return phantom of the opera don't get me started <laughs> it's all i think about every time i say that phrase I just anyway past. No. <laughs> <laughs> a, a character having that idea and it being shown in their actions i i see it when they get back to their cells and kino shouts no one is getting out and the camera camera lingers on him a little too long and you could see it in his face you can see him have the realization of there's no turning back now. I've said the thing. It's so funny. So many people have been like, oh, this show doesn't rely on the Jedi or, you know, it's the big thing of there's no Jedi in this show. That's been a huge right. thing that they've talked about with a lot of the Disney Plus shows. They did it with the first season of The Mandalorian. And then obviously a lot of people have been like, oh, this isn't relying on Jedi like other Star Wars stuff. And I never thought that I would be like, oh, I don't mind that we're getting a story without Jedi. But right. it's almost like because they've taken away that extra pew pew factor, we're able to focus more. We're not having that focus drawn away on an elaborate lightsaber duel. This show hasn't had a ton of action in comparison to other Star Wars stuff. And I'd even say I'm more into it just as a testament to the writing in mm. these emotional moments. Sometimes the emotional moments aren't even vocalized. Like you said, with Kino, after he says no one's getting out and it just lingers on his face, there's so much going on with his face that you can see just in you know the visual from it. And Andy Serkis has done an amazing job with that. He did an amazing job in episode eight. Once you can kind of start seeing the gears turn and then at the beginning of this episode, kind of continuing that conversation after Olaf's death in episode eight afterwards, kind of reconciling exactly what's going on. He's like, I'm really not getting out of here. Like there is no hope. Everything that I've been using, telling myself before I go to bed every night, after I wake up in the morning, 217 more shifts. And then I'm a free person and I'm released. That's not going to happen. And he knows it now. And it's, it's just so crazy seeing how everything played out. And there wasn't even a ton of action in the escape. It gave me super original trilogy vibes, specifically a new hope, like them just running around hallways on the Death Star. It was mm. very that. And I loved that about it. And sure, you could say it's an action scene, but I feel like the most action, the majority of it was just kind of running. There wasn't mm. huge like stakeouts and shootouts and stuff, but just the way that everyone was reacting towards the escape, there was just so much meat there. Uh. See, I'm bringing that back. There was so much <laughs> in what they were doing and what they were portraying just with their physicality versus saying it out loud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. The meat, the gravity of it. You're right. There wasn't... I'm, I'm talking about like the blend of action and emotional storytelling but there wasn't that much action we all felt tense my heart was racing my heart's been racing every time i've watched this episode <laughs> yes but there's really like they're throwing tools at the guards and stuff and they're not hitting them at all either <laughs> right and we know they get out like we know we kind of figured how this ends for the most part but you just made me realize yeah i'm thinking about this in terms of star wars in terms of 
lightsaber battles and war and that kind of thing that we're seeing. And maybe that's very like apropos of what Saw says later in this episode, let's call it war. Like this is also what war looks like. This is the beginning of war. And it's not very actiony, but it made us feel like action and removing that from like quote unquote traditional Star Wars action of physical present action is a really good point that I did not think of. Yeah, they're just running around hallways. It's just like a new hope. It's just yeah. like bef- before the the new version of Cloud City, specifically the old Cloud City when there was no windows. They're mm. just running around hallways and I love it. And it worked so good. It worked so good in this Andor episode, episode nine. Like you said, I was on the edge of my seat. Right. My heart was pounding just like the minute the episode started. Yeah. A testament to like actual physical like body language. Oof. Once Kino first says no one's getting out and there's like that little like cello note that hits. Oh, something about that moment for me from what he said. And then once the kind of music started and it was just like as soon as that music hit, I just was like right in there with him. It was crazy. And it's the look on his face and the music that did it for me. I'd love that. And it even gets to the point where like Kino and Andor make it to level eight and they take over the control room and have the guards shut everything down and don't kill the guards, which listen, I'm not like advocating violence, but that you wouldn't take out the people that have like control over the facility. You just kind of leave them. You know what? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it brought an emotion out of you. Anger. Did the anger? (laughs) Yes. But Kino's speech over the loudspeaker. Like, Kino and Andor have butted heads up until the point of this episode with, like, Andor wanting to rebel against uh, against the prison and Kino just wanting to, like you said, he's got 217 days left, but that at this moment, Andor is, like, Kino's cheerleader and saying, it has to be you. You have to give this speech. You're the leader. So that he can give this speech, so that he can rally everybody, even with everyone hearing the same voice you know that voice of god as you pointed out it's credited in the credits all the prisoners hearing that voice but being uplifted to rebel well it's funny that you were saying he was cassian was kino's cheerleader i almost felt like he was kino's coach Mm. he was kind of helping build kino up to what he knew kino could do and he cassian knew that you know, they may not listen to him. Obviously, not everybody in the facility knows who Kino is either, like you said. But him just saying, I'm Kino Loy, I'm the manager of shift five, was it five two D? Yeah. Like this is a shift manager who believes in this cause. And with him repeating those lines from Cassian, Cassian was kind of the true leader in getting everything started in the prison. Kino was just there to kind of enforce it and make it happen. If Kino was on board, Everybody else is going to be on board. And we saw that when they come back in the beginning, back into the cell after Olaf's death. And Cassian's like, they, he's dead. He's not here. Everyone's like, oh, how do you know? How do you know they killed everybody on two? Well, that guy's just a medic. And as soon as Kino's like, no one's getting out, everybody shuts up and they automatically like, oh, shit. If Kino says no one's getting out, no one's getting out. So I feel like Cassian kind of coached him. I guess he was also the cheerleader and the coach in this moment because mm. he was like, you've got this. I know you can do this. 
and also the like, yes, you can do this at, at the same time with Kino's speech. You know, they did the little montage of the different prisoners running through the cells, releasing others, everyone happy, helping each other out of their shift rooms. And it was super cheesy, of course, but it was still so emotional. Like, I almost started crying Mm. in the middle of it just because of the emotion it was evoking. Like, one of the lines, you know, Kino says, how long we hang on, how far we get, how many of us make it out is all up to us. And, you know, he repeats the line that Cassian says. He says, you know, help each other. If you see someone who's confused or lost, you get them moving and keep them moving until we put this place behind us. And it was just so inspirational. And like I said, with just the scene of all the different prisoners helping each other, it just got me all emotional. I almost started crying. I think I even said in my review that I probably would have cried if my body wasn't so tense from everything else that was happening in the episode. So the line specifically that Kino repeats that Cassian says is, I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. Intense. 100%. And there's something, I mean, uh, this show is, this show is full of those one-liners that really hit me and, and probably everybody. Nemec's speech around the campfire early on and then stuff like this just connect people so much more to the show. So many good speeches and monologues. Yeah. That feel, they never take me out of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're watching a show and, and a character is monologuing and you're just like, no one would talk like this. Like every 30 seconds, a different character is monologuing or telling an anecdote. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is the West Wing, but the West Wing does this a lot. A character will just be like, Let me tell you this anecdote to prove a point that we're making in the show. One time, a newspaper boy was in Bangladesh and, you know, it just goes into this. You're like, no one would ever talk like this. But throughout this show, you just made me realize that, like, they do that sometimes in this show, but it never takes me out of it, which is also a feat. Yeah. I mean, even with Kino's speech, like I said, you know, we had our little cheesy montage of everybody helping each other in the prison. And I think that was the only thing that maybe teetered close to the look at this character having a monologue Mm. and rallying the troops. But it didn't. It still didn't. I was still in the moment with them. It's just been such a good job of making monologues and speeches like this feel like it's just a conversation. It's just somebody. It's some it's the character proving a point that maybe the other people around them don't want to hear, but they're just like, this is how it is, and we've got to do something. Yeah, 100%. This is how it is, and we've got to do something. That's like the thesis of all of these monologues, I think. Yeah. And then the most emotional part, I can't swim. Do you think that Kino knew that that's where they would end up? Well, as we kind of touched on earlier, watching this back now and trying to put my head space back into I've never seen this before. This is my first viewing. I couldn't help but think of at first when Kino first starts the speech on the loudspeaker from the command center. You know, he's kind of skeptical. He doesn't have that kind of oomph behind his voice. He's not really giving a speech. He's literally just like, hello, this is Kino. We're in control of the facility. No one's getting out. And even Cassian's like, really, that's all you've got? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was wondering, did Kino know in these moments that like there's, as he repeats, there's one way out. 
And I'm like, did he know that that one way out was going to be a way that he would never be able to make it out? Yet he still rallied everybody in that prison and gave everybody hope and got them out. I mean, without that speech, I don't think it would have worked. I think it would have been complete chaos. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just crazy. I, I think he knew. I mean, he even says at the beginning, the morning of, he's like, I'm basically thinking I'm already dead. Yeah, yeah, so you're right. He's like, I think I'm already, I'm going into this thinking I'm already dead. Oh, no. He's skeptical to try to rally everybody because he's like, I'm not going to make it out of this. How the hell am I going to help motivate these people to do it when I know I can't? Oh, no. And that's why I think when he says I can't swim, he kind of like says it in a joking way, like, man, I can't swim. That's mm. why I can't go. I Yeah, I think he knew it the whole time. There's one way out, Joey. Oh, my gosh. So I've been on the fence about that interpretation, but I think you've just convinced me, but it makes me, it doesn't, it doesn't make me happy. No, it I doesn't mean, make me happy. <laughs> I'm not happy about it. That's very sad. I liked Kino Loy. Should we dedicate some time to talking about that Andy Serkis is apparently one of the greatest actors of our time? The man has spent the past 20 years in motion capture. behind these fictional faces this is really one of the first times i'm seeing him the actual person and he's incredible yeah something something i heard specifically and going off of the whole why did they keep him behind these mocap suits some people have speculated they specifically wanted him for this role because narkina 5 there's nothing to it it's white walls there's not much to act off of. The environment is very oh, flat. Shit. Very true. He's used so to they were like, that. yeah, Andy Serkis knows how to work with nothing. And thinking about him as a doing so much motion capture work, that man can work his face. And did we not see that throughout this arc, specifically in episode nine? We talked about it earlier. The, he can convey so much with his face. And when when he speaks to the way he speaks, even the way he draws a breath. Anyone listening, I encourage you to go back and even if you just watch the scenes with Andy Circus, and even the way he draws a breath in between what he's saying. As he's drawing a breath, he's saying, what I'm about to say is going to be powerful. What I'm about to say is going to rock your world. And every time he drew a breath, I was like, oh, I got a little bit closer to the TV. Yeah, He's incredible. If you were sad that Kino Loy said he can't swim, go back and watch his scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope he's okay. I have a theory. What's your theory? Let's hear so it. What I hope happens is we hear nothing about him anymore in season one. All right. Well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good theory. I just want him to randomly show up in season two. Like somehow him and Cassian cross paths and it's like, oh shit, Kino survived. Speaking of great emotional speeches and honestly, a character that I've liked significantly less than I've liked Kino Loy. <laughs> Maybe on purpose. Maybe they did that. Luthen's speech at the end of this episode is incredible and gives us so much more into the character like we have gotten to know so many of the characters and we've seen Luthen almost every episode, but this really like got us 
introduced to who Luthen is, or I guess who he is now because of what he's had to do to to not be who he used to be. Here's the thing. I kind of liked Luthen at the beginning, then just like you, I was like, oh, I don't really like this man that much. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry to this man. I don't think I like you very much. We get to episode 10 to the meeting between Luthen and Lonnie, and I'm like, oh, I kind of feel bad for Luthen now. I kind of understand why he is the way he is. I said this in my review. It's like, I feel like this is the first time he's been kind of humanized. He's not just this kind of force who's just working for the rebellion and has to make these tough decisions. Now I understand why he makes these tough decisions. Doesn't mean I agree with them, but I understand where they're coming from. You know, talking about his sacrifice, here's some of the quotes I wrote down. He had to give up calm, kindness, kinship, love. That right there, I was like, yeah, he can't really have any friends. And he can't really get any kindness from people because he's kind of got to be cutthroat all the time. Yeah. Or family. Uh, yeah, exactly. He says he's given up on inner peace. He's made his mind a sunless place. Yeah. Another one that really stuck out to me is I share my dreams with ghosts. Now, I don't know what you got from that, but to me, what I understood is that basically this rebellion he's been fighting for, the people he shared that with, they're not all there anymore. Mm -hmm. Like he's had people come and go in his life that have died for the cause. Those are the ghosts that he shares these dreams with. I mean, was that what you got from it? For sure. And also the people that he's lost in terms of had to cut the relationship with. It's it's very that line hit me very similar to Cassian in Rogue One saying I've lost everyone for the rebellion or whatever he says, but a very similar line. Like, I think that's Luthen's way of saying I've lost everyone to this. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's like, and I can't get anybody new. I can't make any new relationships. I've had to forego that mm -hmm. for this cause. One of the other ones that really stood out to me big, it was. I burn my life to make a sunrise I'll never see. The other one was the ego that started this fight will never have a mirror or audience or gratitude. He knows going into this. I mean, of course, we know he kind of has to work in the shadows to be able to do the things he does. But it's like he wanted to make these changes. And of course, when you're a visionary, you want to make changes. And all of us are a little selfish and we're going to want to thank you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I took from his. He's never going to get that thank you. He's never going to have, you know, crowds of people being like, oh, my gosh, for your sacrifice, you know, we can never repay you. Thank you so much for what you've done and what you've had to sacrifice to get us to where we are. That's never going to happen. And he's accepted that. And it's just like, damn, Luthen, I like I said, I'm seeing him in a whole new light now. And I'm I empathize with him, to be honest. And I did not expect that. Yeah, it's extremely surprising. And I love that whole speech. And it the whole speech on the surface just speaks to the incredible writing for this show. Also, something you just mentioned is like, it almost makes me want a like death scene for Luthen, where someone is present like Vel or Clea and thanks him for everything oh, well, he's done. We won't get that from Clea because she has no emotions. True. It has really surprised me in terms of I've talked a lot, I think, in probably all the episodes you and I have done together. This is not a Star Wars redemption story show. This show has gone out of its way to say 
we're taking that pillar. I've said like, it's breaking that rule of Star Wars. And what it did here with Luthen, that's the only part in the series where I think that this show has pointed to a little bit of a redemption, maybe not within the world, but for him to the audience. Yes. Like you're saying, we're seeing, we're empathizing with the character now. We see his fight and he says, this is the equation that I wrote 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like he's been fighting this. This has been his plan for a long time. And so, yeah, a little bit of empathy, maybe some remorse for thinking of the character as I have been this entire time, but definitely a little bit of a redemption story. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it is it's not like a redemption in the terms of the universe, but it's a redemption of the character for us as the audience. I think that's like I said, I think that's a great way to put it. Well, I think we covered everything. Well, not everything, but we covered what we wanted to cover in those three (laughs) episodes. I'm really enjoying this show. I love it. Thank you so much, Scotty, for coming back and talking about Andor once again. This has been a really great collaboration. Could you please, once again, tell people where to find you everywhere that you are? Yes, of course. And thank you for having me. I love talking Andor with you. I'm going to say that every time we record anything talking about Andor together, but it's true. It's always a great time. Well, we've got another 13 episodes to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) We got a whole season two coming. So, you know, I'll see I'll see you again in two years. (laughs) But no, you can find me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Hive at Scotty Holiday SW. Yes, everyone, please go check out all of Scotty's stuff. They've been doing breakdowns of each episode of Andor, so you could check those out. Check out the previous episodes that we've done on Krypton to Alderaan. They've been really great. And that's the show. Well, thanks again, Scotty. I'll see you next time. See you next time. Hit the music. Bye. (laughs) Hit the music. (laughs) Bye-bye.